With Linode, build applications using their simple cloud manager, API, or CLI. Quickly scale up or down with standard VMs, dedicated CPUs, and enterprise-grade GPUs. All with the best price to performance and same pricing across 11 global data centers. They're also people, just like you. You get fast, human support, 24 by 7. So visit linode.com slash day2cloud, that's D-A-Y, the number 2, C-L-O-U-D, and get $100 in free credit to try them out. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We've got a show for you today. Ned Bellavance and Chris Hayner are the guests today. And you're like, wait, Ethan, Ned is the host of Day 2 Cloud. How can he be a guest? Well, it's because Ned is so amazingly popular. He was a delegate along with Chris at Cloud Field Day 14, a tech field day event. And uh, Ned, we decided we'd break down some of the some of the vendor presentations that you saw at Cloud for, Field Day 14. Well, that's right. And and just to answer listeners' initial question, it's because I cloned myself. And that's why there's there's two of me. So when you hear me acting as the host, that's actually a whole separate being that I've cloned specifically for that purpose. So I hope you enjoy that portion of the conversation uh, or that might get edited out. I don't, I don't know. It's still mm -hmm. classified top secret. Mm -hmm. But we are going to get into some interesting vendors that we saw at Cloud Field Day and really hit on the main theme, which is Multi-cloud is a thing, and vendors are really getting on board with it. Enjoy this episode with Ned Bellavance and Chris Hayner. I open up with a question asking them about their other podcast that they do called Chaos Lever. Oh, Chris Hayner, since you're the new guy on the show, even though you and Ned do all your uh, you know recordings together on this Chaos Lever thing, which is that's actually Chris, what I wanted to ask you about. You have this show called Chaos Lever that you record with Ned each week. Give us a brief intro of that podcast. Yeah, it's funny. We're only on episode 15 of this iteration of the show, but the show's history goes back, oh God, five years? <laughs> 2016, least. I think? That sounds, yeah, the end of 2016 is when we recorded the first episode of Buffer Overflow. Right, which was the greatest podcast in the history of podcasts. A lot of people don't know that, but <laughs> it was then unceremoniously and unfairly taken offline. So tragically, people won't be able to hear old episodes, but it was, it was amazing. It is, in fact, the first tech podcast ever, and for a long time, the only tech podcast. That's a little known fact, but also true. <laughs> so Chaos Lever is the uh, is the handoff from Buffer Overflow, if you will. You're 15 episodes into Chaos Lever, and what do you gentlemen cover on Chaos Lever? So we try to keep abreast of updated events in the technology landscape, as well as uh, tackling "quote unquote" big ideas. So, for example, the last episode that was that was released uh, July 12th, Ned and I had a robust conversation about DevOps and the idea of it, what people think that it is versus what it actually is. And then at the end, we also do talk about later upcoming and or just past technical news, like making fun of Elon Musk, um, which is really enjoyable, <laughs> keeping up with various product releases, criticizing security flaws, stuff like that. Now, I have listened to many episodes of Chaos Lover, and I will say the tone is entertaining. You guys go back and forth. It's just the two of you. You don't have guests. And, uh, but you do have lots of witty banter and opinions that you, uh, that you share about what's going on. And your merciless abuse of Elon Musk is highly entertaining, I must admit. <laughs> All I can say is he deserves it. <laughs> okay. So the Chaos Lever podcast, if you folks are, are listening to this and you like the banter that you're going to hear in this episode of Day 2 Cloud between Ned and Chris, well, I think the similar tone is what you're going to hear in Chaos Lever. So maybe check that out if you like uh, what they got going on uh, in this episode as we chat through Cloud Field Day. So both of you were attendees, delegates at the Cloud Field Day 14 event that was held out on the West Coast here recently. Uh, what was it, June 2022, I think? That was the month. And um, we want to talk about some of the presentations that you two saw at Cloud Field Day 14 and get your impressions. Uh, these were vendors making technical presentations tending towards the engineering crowd. Uh, and we want to talk about not every vendor, right, guys? But we want to cover uh, several of the vendors that you saw there, right? 
I think that's a that's a fair assessment. Um, I think six percenters, or maybe there were seven vendors overall. But yeah, we wanted to focus in on on three that we were most impressed with. But I and, think, and who who impressed you the most then? Um, the standout to me was one that I didn't expect because I'd never heard of them before, which was Weka. They're they're a storage company. And we can we can delve more into them in a moment. Just just for any folks who are not familiar with Cloud Field Day, uh, it's it's an interesting event, if you will. Uh, so if, if folks haven't watched any of the videos or, or participated in in any way, the idea behind Cloud Field Day is vendors come and present to a panel of delegates, of which Chris and I were delegates, and. We are there to ask questions and probe into the nooks and crannies of a product and, and try to figure out what it what it actually does versus what they're saying. And sometimes that's a challenge for the vendors because they don't know how to message their own product. Uh, so we try to <laughs> nudge them in, in the right direction. And, well, and, and what's more is the event is live streamed. So you can, anyone on the internet can go to techfieldday.com and watch a live stream of an event. So you're asking vendors hard questions that maybe they don't know how to answer or what the messaging quote unquote should be. And they're there live, you know, watching it. Uh, you you can there <laughs> be be there watching it. And, uh, and I guess it's also a good point that if you can't watch it live, all the videos are on the Tech Field Day channel. Uh, on YouTube. Right. So if any of these pique your interest and you want to know more, you want to see the actual presentation, uh, clips are available on YouTube, or you can just go to techfieldday.com. They have the whole summary for each vendor there, as well as links to all their previous presentations. But uh, aside from that, the the big theme that interlocks the three vendors we're going to talk about is the embracing of doing things in a cloud native way and multi-cloud and that's yeah. that's a perennial favorite topic yeah. that we've had on this show before yeah, is yeah because Ned, in the last year we've gone from is it going to be multi-cloud will we all go multi-cloud to everybody is multi-cloud so let's just cope with that reality right and that's kind of what i think we've come down on at this point is everybody's going to be multi-cloud to some degree and so vendors are realizing they're not going to start their own private, uh, they're not going to start their own public cloud service. Like that's just not an option at this point. No one has the capital to do it. And that's actually something we covered on Chaos Lever in depth, right, Chris? We did. Hyperclouds, yeah. bad idea, I think was the main takeaway. <laughs> Calling them hyperclouds was that, yeah, that, that was kind of silly, but also just like the amount of uh, capital expenditure you need to build and operate a hyperscale cloud is preposterous. And there's a reason there's only like three or four. Right. And to put that into perspective for people, the only company that has legitimately done this, even for themselves in a successful manner, is Walmart. So if you have as much money as Walmart, by all means. <laughs> Go ahead. So the, the, I think the big acknowledgement from these vendors is we're not going to build our own cloud platform, but we can put something over top of the existing cloud platforms to help unify and simplify things for the end user. And that's the market opportunity, right? Now it's, okay, you're living in the multi-cloud world. The interfaces are not identical. How do we homogenize that access to those multi-clouds, to, to the multi-cloud uh, for you and make your life easier? Bring some, some operational synergies uh, to what you're doing, I guess, Ned. Oh, oh. <laughs> don't forget the, sing the single panes of glass. <laughs> oh. Well, let's jump into what some of these vendors are doing. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, Weka, Ned, as a, as a starting point. So why don't you introduce us to what uh, this vendor is and what they do? Uh, one thing that I appreciate about what they did, uh, what they did in terms of the presentation is they were all wearing purple shoes. They were so purple. purple. Like their color. <laughs> the color coordination was amazing. Yeah. Apparently, that's a thing. Now, uh, color coordinating uh, your shoes with the, the vendor colors, because they were not the only ones who did that. Uh, we'll get to the other two in, in a moment. But yeah, they all had purple shoes on, not the same shoes, but all wearing purple shoes to match their purple shirts. So I appreciate that. Uh, but what do they actually do? And the answer to that is they provide a cloud native storage solution, both to uh, the public cloud, uh, specifically AWS focused at the moment, but I think they also have an Azure offering. And then they also do an on-prem version of the same thing that has some hefty requirements in terms of what you need to provide because they really are leveraging 
sort of cloud native services to build and manage and operate the storage. So, so a couple of questions off the bat from me, the, if it is cloud storage, does that mean they have an array up in the cloud that I can take advantage of? That's one of the offerings. So I can map my uh, storage needs from AWS over to wherever their cloud is probably instantiated somewhere nearby Virginia, you know, that kind of thing. You're so making a you, face, Ned. no, you build your own Weka cluster, whether it's on-prem or in AWS. Uh, and that cluster through Weka's magic basically is the repository for their either proprietary connector or standard NFS types of connections. The idea here is just to create a global file system that isn't dependent on S3 controls or connections or Azure Blob controls or connections. And if you wanted to do multi-cloud with it, you would interface with the Weka cluster rather than the native tools themselves but the cluster is always your control and your responsibility. But in the cloud, and, nothing's real. So where are the physical disk drives? Well, that, so that you're part, still paying for the physical disk drives from AWS? That part was super interesting to me because other storage solutions that we've seen that claim to be in the cloud, a lot of them, they're doing literally what you're talking about. They're either putting their own equipment in like the AWS data center and running and managing it for you, or and, Azure or any of the other ones. Yes. Or they're putting their actual storage arrays in uh, like an Equinix data center that is right next to the cross connects for all the cloud. And that's, and saying, that's the model I've seen dominate you know, historically. So I assume Weka was doing something similar, but they're not. They're not. So what they're doing is they're actually taking the IaaS constructs that you have in the major clouds, that have NVMe storage built into them and leveraging that NVMe storage to create a storage cluster and then present that storage cluster, like Chris said, in standard interfaces you can use. So if you want to use NFS, they have one for that. If you want to use SMB, they have an interface for that. Uh, and if you want to use their sort of proprietary interface, you'll probably get the most performance, but you're going to need to have your software or your endpoint talk that proprietary interface. Okay, so I have another question then. Why do I want this? So there's a couple of advantages that they, they highlight, and a lot of them have really only have implications for enterprises that are passing a ridiculous amount of data extremely quickly. Um, this is not for the flower shop down the street. No. Um, their example company was 23andMe, just to give you an idea of the scale and scope of the data that they're, they're handling. Um, why do you want it is to get that abstraction away from just using S3 or EBS types of controllers and allowing the Weka platform to handle it to the point where they were advertising 16 to 32 gigabit per second read time on their cluster. And that's like the cluster size minimum is six hosts of an I3EN size. So they are not small and they are not cheap. Um, but the trade-off there is you get a crazy amount of speed, reliability as well, because the cluster is going to be built in a redundant fashion. Um, and you can share cluster data across from US East to US West, for example, and make that part of your disaster recovery model. Um, a lot of additional features that customers might not necessarily need, but if you need them, you can't necessarily get them from the native cloud offerings. So 23andMe, I had not heard of them before, but uh, a search says they are genetic testing for health, ancestry, and more. So we're talking about massive data sets. So if, if your storage challenges, you need to move massive data sets around and do heavy munging on it for probably something to do with machine learning and AI, then um, maybe you need a Weka cluster up in the cloud. Right. And the other thing there is the data is dynamic. It's constantly changing. And when users log into their 23andMe site, you're getting live data from reports based off of this huge data set. So that data has to be instantly accessible. And that's where the idea of read times of 16 gigabits per second really might make some sense. Because as we all know, if a user has to wait 0.25 seconds, they will immediately cancel their subscription. Uh, interesting. <laughs> Uh, so, so here's a question. I'll come at this you know, from a different angle. Would this obviate the need for some edge 
for some edge clusters where I'd be processing it locally because I have all this local power and uh, and I have a lot of IOPS and throughput and so on if I'm doing that compute job, you know, in a data center right next to me, as opposed to, I can't wait for the cloud. It's going to take too long if I send it up there. And by the time the cloud processes it, uh, it, it won't be relevant or whatever the caveat is for sending that data up to the cloud. Does this maybe help us there? It does in the sense that it's a global file system. So you can run it locally, you can run it on AWS, and you can pass the workloads back and forth relatively easily, far more simply than trying to do a migration from physical disk to S3 or EBS. So there are obviously, there's huge costs that you incur on a monthly basis when it comes to buying the IaaS instances and the storage that you would save by running it on-prem. But then if you want to get into a distributed model or a disaster recovery model, and you don't want to deal with passing from one file system to another or one structure to another, something like Weka would make it a lot easier. And of course, it still doesn't solve the problem of network latency and the typical bottlenecks you're going to get pushing data oh, yeah, your pipes pipe have to be from, enormous. from on-site up to the cloud. Yeah, you still got that problem. Yeah, you mentioned right. the edge, and that's that's not a situation where it would necessarily help with that initial data processing because mm. a lot of the times your edge locations might not have the best bandwidth up to a cloud location anyway. So ideally, you're going to want to chew through and munge that information locally at that edge node first, and then just send the relevant data up. And if you had the hardware there to run a Weka cluster, you could, but you would have to provide that hardware with all the NVMe drives and uh, they have the specs listed out for building like an on-prem cluster. It's it's a robust cluster. You're not just going to slap it on a, a single one U server and go. Yeah, it's six nodes minimum and those mm -hmm. nodes are substantial. <laughs> now, do I when I think of cloud native one of the things I think of is that I can, you know, stand up whatever the components are that I need to deliver my app, you know, quickly. I've got APIs, I've got you know, Terraform providers, I've got CloudFormation, whatever it is, that I can stand things up quickly. Is Weka friendly like that? And does that even matter because this um this kind of sounds like it's so big and heavy and there's so much data that you're trying to move that maybe you don't stand up Weka clusters and then tear them down willy-nilly. I would not think of them as dynamic in that way. You're, you're right. right. These are you know, massive pools of data that you're not just going to build up and tear down. What is more cloud-native about it is the scalability of the Weka cluster. So you can scale the number of nodes or, or instances that are supporting your storage cluster up and down as you need. So the 23andMe example, if they have a period of time that's real heavy, that like around Christmas time, where everybody is giving each other 23andMe tests for Christmas, which is apparently a thing that people have done. Uh, I don't know why you do that. I don't They're want to know. 50% off in December, Ned. <laughs> yes. Well, so since, since they do that, um, 23andMe does want to scale out the cluster to handle the additional load during that period of time. And then they want to automatically scale the cluster back when the number of requests or the needed IOPS goes back down. And Weka can handle that. It can dynamically scale the number of nodes that are in your, uh, I guess it's an auto scale group in AWS to handle whatever the load is and then scale it back down when you don't need that capacity. Right. And not only auto scaling, but they do have some features that have been deployed for auto tiering which when you're talking about terabytes, petabytes, exabytes of storage in AWS, tiering is going to matter a little bit. <laughs> just, just a tiny bit. That, yeah, so if you can offload that to S3, that's kind of nice when, when you don't need the faster access to that data. Well, that's sort of an overwhelming capability because if you think about how data is typically spread across disk arrays with various flavors of RAID and so on, you know, as soon as you introduce changes to the, to the physical elements of where that uh, data is laid out in theory if you're dynamically adding and subtracting you're you're refactoring where that data actually lives you know in, in in theory that would be what's happening there so if they can do that on the fly and you're not paying too big of a performance penalty for too long while you do that that is that's a pretty crazy capability right there yeah, and in terms of feature set there, the last thing I would I would point out in for version four of Weka, they're introducing data compression, which same idea. If you have that built native into your file system 
and they're they're claiming anywhere between three and six x compression, depending on your data set. That's a substantial cost savings in and of itself, regardless of where you tier it. Wow. Okay. So who if who am I if I'm interested in Weka? You know, we gave we've talked about the twenty three and Me example. I mean, are there other other use cases that they're aiming for? There was another. It was a, I think it was a healthcare organization that was trying to process messages, and they had only been able to process 6 million messages a day and they needed to scale up heavily. And so they added Weka to the current design that they'd been working on in AWS and bumped up to being able to process 69 million messages a day, which is, you know, a significant bump. It's Uh, definitely more. (laughs) And they were doing it with a Kubernetes cluster. So add that additional layer on there there's a CSI plugin for EKS and, and other Kubernetes clusters that hooks right into Weka and can present it um, to the pods for for as they're needed. So it does have that dynamic capability as well. But I think the ideal client for Weka is someone who's dealing with large volumes of data um, and needs the performance and processing that is not available on the public clouds today or is really, really expensive because talking to them, they say, yeah, you know, we know we're expensive, right? You're going to be spinning up these like I3 instances and they are not cheap. But if you compare what you would pay to run some of the other services in AWS to get anything comparable to the performance, we're still cheaper. <laughs> so like, how if does you need multi-cloud, it, yeah. How does, How does multi-cloud, multi-cloud factor in? Well, because we still have the data gravity problem. The way the architecture lays out, that, that's still a big piece of this. So how does multi-cloud factor in? Uh, the example they gave was using GCP, same architecture in terms of the backend, because GCP has compute nodes that have MVMe storage and all that kind of jazz. So they can build out the same cluster. And those two clusters can be part of the same global namespace. And yes, Replicating the data from one to the other is initially going to be expensive because you have to move it all at once. But then to keep them up to date with each other, then it's just going to be those incremental changes Mm -hmm. across from one to the other. So it's just like spanning any other storage solution. Uh, The more tightly integrated that storage solution is with the replication that's handling it, the better performance you're going to get. And since they own that whole portion of the stack, you should, in theory, have less data egress charges going between clouds. In theory, yes. In theory. <laughs> and then managing the actual solution, you'll use their portal and uh, their tools to manage the two solutions that are running in these two separate clouds. So it's a consistent interface to manage your storage, even though they're running in you know potentially two, three clouds and on-prem. So that's sort of the, the multi-cloud messaging is it's, one interface to rule them all. Hmm. Okay. Weka, have we done it, guys? Should we move on to the next vendor? Uh, weka, weka, weka. Let's weka. do it. Oh, come on now. <laughs> okay. So moving on to Alkira. Now, if you're a listener to the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, you've heard of Alkira before. They've been on the show. Uh, we did a live stream event with them at some point. Uh, they've done podcasts with us. And uh, they're in the realm of multi-cloud networking. Now, Chris, was, was Alkira new to you? I had never heard of it before. So what'd you think? It was, at first I was deeply confused. <laughs> I think um, we all were. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of what we were looking at, they refer to as cloud area networking, which is a disappointing term I hope to never hear again. Um, but it really does explain what they're trying to do. And that is set up the external connections between either on-prem or multi-cloud or hybrid cloud models so that you don't have to do it yourself. They do all of this through a unified dashboard that allows you basically graphical interface point and click to enable connections, configure firewall rules, set up auditing and reporting, which is all pretty slick once you started to understand what was happening. It's basically all of the plumbing from your VNet out into your VNet in. So all your local networking is still your responsibility, but connecting everything from one cloud to another or on-prem to the cloud, or even if you wanted to from one region to another, Alkira will handle it through their crazy fast, hyper-redundant network. 
Mm. That was the biggest point of confusion initially for, for me. And I think you as well, Chris, and the rest of the group was we were thinking of it as a solution that would manage the networking within each cloud. So right. they would set up the VPC for you and then they would, or they would integrate into your VPC and help you set up security groups and all that kind of stuff. And that is not their play. There are other solutions out there that will help you actually deploy. The, try try the to DNA. use the cloud native networking constructs when they can, um, which I thought Alkira did do some of that. Although to be fair, it's been a while since I reviewed and there are so many entrants in this space. It does get a little confusing who does what and what <laughs> their niche is. But right. So you, you're making the point that Alkira's big play was they have a network they'll plumb you into. So they're like this uh, meeting in the middle. They're, they're there, the Alkira cloud, and they'll plumb all your different cloud presences into their cloud and get you uh, high-speed connectivity from one place to another, yeah? Yeah, they kept talking about these cloud exchange points and how they would you'd get plumbed into the cloud exchange points. And then finally, we got them to break it down. How do, how do I actually connect to one of those exchange points? And at least from the AWS perspective, it's you're hooking into their, tra they have a transit gateway, essentially. Mm -hmm. So they're running a transit gateway in you know, multiple AWS regions. And when you sign up and want to connect your stuff in, you're connecting into that transit gateway. And then that transit gateway has connections that ride the cloud backbones. So AWS's backbone, Azure's backbone, all of those to get from one cloud to another. So they're really trying to just make use of the existing bandwidth that's provided by the public clouds and ride that for as much as possible. So that was pretty interesting. So if you're trying to do inter-region communication between two AWS regions, or if you're trying to connect stuff from, a, from M, uh, Azure and Google to stuff in AWS, or even if you're trying to connect your on-prem stuff as well, all of those get connected to these exchange points and then create a mesh to talk to each other. It's not simply a communications fabric, though, if I remember right. Doesn't Alkira have some higher tier services, uh, security and the such like? Yeah, they do. So they were talking about that they have integrations with a bunch of different security vendors to do things like inspection and firewalling and all of that jazz. So you can kind of think of it in the way that you would have traditionally built a WAN between your data centers and your branch offices in the past. This is a newer take on that where they're sort of managing that. And I, I even push them. I'm like, so you're SD-WAN, basically. <laughs> hmm. And they're like, no, we're not SD-WAN, but we integrate with SD-WAN. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Did you just say the same thing twice? I don't. So what they were trying to say is SD-WAN is a feature and it's something they can integrate with, but what they're providing is more of this larger orchestration solution that takes all of your cloud real estate into the same context. And it's not using appliances to do it. So that was another big thing for me is the solution for so many regular, uh, I won't say regular, so many traditional vendors that are very appliance-based and were very hardware-based in the past is yep. to just slap a virtual appliance in you know, your cloud presence. So, oh, you need, uh, you know, a firewall or you need uh, a VPN concentrator or you need whatever, a router. Oh, we'll just slap two of these virtual appliances in each of your VPCs or, or a transit gateway. The path of least resistance was to do it that way as opposed to cloud native. We know how to virtualize our appliance and get it running in your VPC. And we can therefore provide you cloud services, quote unquote but not cloud native, not really rethought or reconstructed to take advantage of, of cloud native. Uh, and, and right. So, so, so much of that. So right. Alkira would be doing it, doing it quote unquote, the right way here as much as they can. But the major downside to the, the appliance thought process is cloud networking doesn't work the same as networking on-prem. And I think when we did that show with Ivan Peplniak, he talked about the fact that if you've ever tried to set up high availability with two virtualized appliances in a cloud, <laughs> you know how awful it is. <laughs> yeah. So why build that when you have the opportunity to build something that just uses the APIs and native constructs that are right. already highly available and you don't have to worry about that? The downside is now you have a different interface to use as opposed to 
you know, whatever CLI tool or Ansible playbook you were using before to configure your network gear. I'm putting the podcast on pause to introduce you to sponsor Linode. You could cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines, developing, deploying, and scaling your modern applications faster and easier. In fact, when I was looking to migrate my WordPress hosting, I ended up picking Linode because it had the best price at the performance level I was looking for, and I've never looked back. The performance is there for me when my latest Terraform-related post drops, and I know if something goes wrong, Linode offers 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. You get to talk to like a real person the whole time. And while Linode is based in my hometown of Philly, they have data centers across the world, all with the same simple and consistent pricing model. And I do mean simple. You shouldn't need a team of financial engineers to understand your cloud bill, and with Linode, you won't. So whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. And you can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Day2Cloud. You can find all the details at linode.com slash day2cloud. That's D-A-Y, the number two, C-L-O-U-D. And it's not just Linux VMs. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you could use that $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. As they like to say, if it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash day2cloud, that's D-A-Y, the number two, C-L-O-U-D, and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. So, uh, so Chris, if you were shopping for a multi-cloud networking solution, where does how does Alkira fit in? Uh, I might be the, not the best person to ask because I personally don't believe in networking. As a uh, <laughs> now, I I can definitely see where it makes sense. Um, if, in particular, you don't want that complexity to fall on your internal resources. Um, like Ned said, doing any type of complex networking in the cloud adds a level of mystery and, and confusion that doesn't necessarily have to be there. If you don't have experts in AWS networking and Azure networking, and you want to connect AWS and Azure, have everything be highly available. Make sure you're using all of your bandwidth properly, setting up your firewall rules to communicate in between them, and be able to do the auditing that's necessary for a highly regulated environment. Having a third party abstract all that stuff into a GUI that you can then report against can make a lot of peace of mind for companies that are just not inclined to have that expertise on staff. And the other thing that they brought up was the fact that they provide really good monitoring and diagnostic tools for the interconnectivity. And that can't be overstated when you know the network goes wrong, because as we all know, the, the issue is always networking. Oh, totally. yes, yes. If it's not yes. DNS, it's always the network, yeah. I mean, or it's both, right? It's the network, the DNS is screwed up because of the network, of course. <laughs> Fine, Ned, it's always the network. Fine. Uh, yeah, unless it's storage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what they did kind of hammer on a few times was the fact that they provide a single pane of glass, everybody drink, uh, for troubleshooting and monitoring your sort of your cloud area network that they called it. It's really just a WAN. So we can just call it a WAN. They were trying to differentiate. But the 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 point was you can integrate all the monitoring tools that you currently use, whether it's SolarWinds or Wireshark or Splunk or anything like that. And they also can pull information from all the native services that each cloud has. So if you're using you know, CloudTrail on AWS or Azure Monitor or you know GCP's Stack Driver, it will pull in information from all of those and then present that information to you through this one console that Alkira is, is showing you. And that can really help you figure out where is the problem right now. Can, you can do a ping across the entire thing and see where the ping's failing. You can do trace routes. You can do packet inspections and flow inspections. So it really, if you're having trouble with the interconnectivity of your clouds and your on-prem or even your remote users, this is a tool you could use to dig into why you're having those problems and maybe even come up with a solution. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's not to be understated that e ease of use and getting a system that simplifies a lot of this for you is that that's a thing that that matters. Um, you can spin your wheels pretty hard trying to get all of this up and running and then operationalize, you know, your day two multi-cloud networking stuff to keep it all going is a thing. Then when you want to layer in security and inspection services along the way, that also can be a thing. And so a, a vendor like Alkira, it's not a nice to have like luxury item. It's like this could fit in well for your business and operational processes to have a service that handles all of this for you. So, you know, don't think of it as like, ah, it's this extra abstraction layer. I don't really need it. I can just do it. Roar. Yeah, maybe, but maybe, but, but why is that the, the best way to spend your time? Right. My feeling on that too, is as your organization grows, your network challenges do not grow linearly. They grow exponentially and often very, very fast. So if you get ahead of that with a tool like this, then you can help protect your organization from being surprised by the technical requirements that your network all of a sudden absolutely needs. And I know your next question is, do they have a Terraform provider? And of course they do. <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> yeah, you can you can set yeah. the whole thing up with Terraform. And the founders are uh, Viptela alums, so they understand like that whole SD-WAN space really well. And for them, this was like the next logical step beyond just having SD-WAN. So yeah. I, I, pretty pretty solid uh pretty solid looking product. And if it, if it fits your specific need, like you were talking about, I know I have this looming problem of connecting clouds and on-prem and i want to do it in a in a way that feels more natural you know give it give them a look check out alkira yeah all right so we've hit weka we've hit alkira and we've got uh, one more youtube gentleman wanted to hit morpheus data who uh seems familiar to me at least by name although i'm spacing out on what they do uh chris give us the give us the overview here of a uh, morpheus data so just a phrase that I've come up with completely by myself and I'm not reading off the screen. Morpheus is a unified orchestration platform built to simplify the consumption and management of hybrid cloud infrastructure, container clusters, and automation tools so organizations can eliminate friction and modernize applications. Wow, you should be in marketing. That's amazing, <laughs> my goodness. You said a lot of words and none of them meant anything. I, I blacked out in the middle. I'm not even sure what I was talking about. Are you, are you back with us now? Yeah. I've done some hyperventilating. I think I'm, I think I'm good. All right, all right. Now, their right. goal is companies want to use the cloud. The cloud gets complex fast. How do you keep eyes on it? How do you let it grow in an organized fashion um, through a single pane of glass everyone drink? <laughs> Man, if anybody uh, is playing the drink at home single pane of glass game, uh, just, you know, warning, warning here that you, you might, need to seek help for alcohol poisoning. We, we might get to that. Because <laughs> there was a lot of that talk of single pane of glass. But I think what they're trying to, it all goes back to the multi-cloud management story, which is I need a unified tool to manage my cloud real estate. What is the tool out there that gives me that? And Morpheus Data is not doing networking like Alkira. They're not doing storage like Weka. I would call them like an orchestrator of orchestrators. Maybe would... Well, their strong effort towards self-servicing everything in the cloud. So creating life cycles, creating workflows, allowing people to create RBAC controls around who can spin up a life cycle and who can't, um, whether that orchestration tool is something that already exists, like a Puppet Chef Ansible, uh, I would say SaltStack, but come on now. Oh, um, but yes everything through this one presentation layer. So that allows you to give people the control to do what they need to do. But as an organization, you still have oversight and are the one that controls what the buttons actually do. Right. And they really singled out platform teams. So if you are an organization that is building or has a platform team that's trying to provide a consistent platform to your developers, Morpheus data is something that can assist with that because essentially what they're doing is they're providing sort of uh, a pretty interface to all of these backend tools that will actually do the work. So Chris, you mentioned Terraform 
It could be CloudFormation, Ansible. It could be even deployment scripts or something along those lines. If I want to spin up an environment, but I and I want to have control. Well, if I, if I want to give somebody else the ability to spin up an environment, but I want to put some guardrails on it, Morpheus Data will allow you to present them with a workflow that has drop downs and stuff like that, where they just select the T-shirt size they want, and it gives the environment they need. But do do developers want that? I mean, it feels like my a developer would be a customer of this service I build in Morpheus. Uh, I'd present it to my developer, but a developer doesn't want to sit there and you know do click down through drop downs, do they? That was the easy option. So it was just like, hey, here's this interface, and it made for a good demo because mm. watching people type out command line stuff is not always fun. <laughs> but they also made the point that if developers prefer to interact with their solution through an API or a script or or whatever, that's also an option. So they could invoke the creation of a Morpheus environment with a webhook instead of doing it through the portal. But more the idea is developers want self-service and IT ops or the platform team wants to limit what they can do, but still empower them to do the things they want to do. And security is worried about like them opening up vulnerabilities, you know, leaving port 22 open to the world, all those kinds of things. And finance wants to know, hey, what are you making and how much is it going to cost? So here's a self-service interface that can kind of give you all of those different elements and satisfy the needs of these different teams. But it feels like it's it's bridging the divide between uh, between dev and ops then. Uh, it's, a, it's a tool that can be used to meet in the middle. So if you actually, as an ops person, talk to your developers to figure out what it is that they need so that they can stand up infrastructure to run their applications. You can build it for them in Morpheus and then the developers can consume it. Is that a fair way to think about it? That is. Um, and the more that Morpheus has eyes on, the more you can also use another aspect of the tool, which is analysis, what if scenarios, cost management, um, and estimating monthly costs. And that's harder than it sounds, because especially if you're in a multi-cloud environment, you have to maintain you know, eyes on various different region prices, various different uh, currencies, if you're running in Europe and you're running in the United States, uh, and then creating a model that can do a what if for either a deployment or a scale up, scale down across multi-cloud to handle the budgeting for an appliance or an a, application, I should say, that's difficult to do on your own, especially on a monthly basis. So having a tool like this that can see everything really does help in a way that a standard DevOps tool might not give you that kind of information. So that economic data, Chris, is that like, I can choose where to deploy this application based on the estimated cost it will be to run it on AWS versus Azure. Is it that that sort of a play or is it more like... Um, it, Morpheus knows, and as part of its decision point on where to deploy something, it can feed into uh, the algorithm of where to deploy it. More like, more like Kubernetes kind of has some autonomy as to where it would stand up a container based on what the parameters are of uh, all the physical nodes that are out there. So I don't know that they went so far as to say they would deploy to different clouds. Okay. But one thing that they did do is talked about automated right sizing. So you could have an, a workflow in, or in place that goes every day or every week or every month and says, what are we using in our IaaS? If it's below a certain threshold, scale it down. So you can handle some cost management stuff in that way if you chose to enable it. Or you could just tell it to alert. So it's, often, it's, it's a lot like... Um, you know, old DRS rules in the VMware world. Do you want your VMs to move on their own or do you want them to just yell at you and say, hey, we should migrate? I think the other interesting thing to me and, and the way that I thought about it is Morpheus Data is trying to create a reconciliation loop in the same way that Kubernetes tries to do for how it manages a cluster. You said I got my next question, but keep going. <laughs> to a certain degree, what, it, it, what they're trying to do is Here's some orchestration you put together to build out a thing, but we'll also check on the status of that thing over time. 
And then if it comes out, if it goes outside of the bounds, we can have a reconciliation loop that fixes it and puts it back in the bounds that it should be, or at least tells you that something is off so you can take necessary steps to remediate it. And from a cost perspective, they'll integrate with um, your enterprise or CSP pricing that you have for Azure and uh, or uh, GCP. So it'll actually show you the real pricing of it and not just the retail pricing that you can pull from the public data. I thought that was pretty useful, uh, especially mm -hmm. if you're a service provider, which is one of their big clients. Uh, a set of clients are service providers who want to provide this as a multi-tenant experience to uh, kind of like building almost a, a private cloud or oh, private multi-tenant yeah. cloud. Yeah. Because it gives them the, the management layer on top that they don't want to have to write themselves so they can present multi-tenant services to their, their consumers. Yeah, I get that. Right. Uh, well, so then the question is for certain customers then, why Morpheus and not Kubernetes? Because it feels like they're competing things. Well, I think, first of all, uh, Morpheus did make a lot of noise about how they can handle Kubernetes just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but their big play is they can handle everything else as well. Mm. So if you're a 100% pure Kubernetes shop, I would guess that there's less of an incentive, mm -hmm. but some of the other tools might not exist in the Kubernetes world. Where Morpheus really shines, I think, is when you have a lot going on, on-prem, multi-cloud, uh, edge devices, spinning up and spinning down, developers that are you know, interested in creating short-term workloads for testing, and being able to have eyes on all of that. I think that's where some of Morpheus's value prop really comes in. Right. I, I tend to think of it as, as, and maybe this is the best way to, to put it, you have the AWS console, right? And that allows you to go and do things in AWS, deploy services, and you have a limited number of choices for what you can deploy and sizes available, right? But that is specific to just AWS. Now, if I wanted to build a platform and provide that platform as sort of a private cloud or, or a platform as a service to my internal business units, or I wanna be like a service provider and provide it to a bunch of different companies, I'm not just going to point them at the AWS console. Morpheus lets you create a higher, uh, a, a similar experience of self-service, cloud-like, being able to interact with the platform and spin stuff up. But it can apply to more than just AWS. It can apply to on-prem stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, Kubernetes running in multiple different clouds, Azure, GCP. What the tools you actually use underneath are going to be things that you're hopefully already familiar with, like Terraform and Ansible and scripting and, and all that jazz, to accomplish that goal of getting of offering basically platform as a service to whomever. Now, I would have assumed if I wanted to give this thing a shot, I'd go up to Morpheus's website and spin up an instance. But the notes here say there is no SaaS offering. So how do I deploy this thing? Yeah, it is not SaaS. It is deployed in your own environment. Um, and there's a couple of different options there, depending on the size of your organization, it can get complicated fast. So most of the time, you're gonna wanna work with Morpheus to do the deployment and they have excellent deployment teams that are more than happy to help out in, in any way that they can. Uh, they also do have a community version. So you can download and install like kind of a all-in-one appliance model just to see what's going on. but they made the decision that all of this data is your data and it can be quite sensitive and some people can be quite gun shy about having it up in the cloud. So they run it on your on-prem environment. You protect the data in the same way that you would protect you know, your databases or whatever. Uh, and it just reaches out as required to speak to the various devices or cloud services that you're using. It also speaks to what their target market is. There is a presumption that you're probably trying to integrate some on-prem services and uh, mm -hmm. give control of those over to Morpheus. So it would make sense to prioritize that it would be an on-prem offering and, uh, and, you know, and not SaaS. Now, right. they can say what they want about, you know, data is being secure. Your data is very secure and it's yours and we got to keep it private. And so it's your problem. We're going to punt it back to you. They'll have a SaaS offering someday, I bet. They just will. There'll be enough customers that want it that uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they make that as an offering at some point. Possibly. And the other big thing is because it's running on-prem or at least running in a self-hosted environment, 
they also provide the ability for you to white label their solution and present it as yours to yep. the end client. So yeah, if you're following that service provider model, the client will have no idea it's Morpheus running under the covers. And honestly, they don't care. You know, it's it's your cloud solution that they're interacting with to deploy services and whatnot. So I don't know, for me, if if I was a service provider trying to build that, or I was at a large enterprise that and trying to run a platform team to build this sort of self-service thing, it's like, okay, they've done a lot of the heavy lifting for me. I still have to create the Terraform configs and the Ansible playbooks and all that that's actually going to do the work on the back end. But at least this orchestration layer is something that I don't have to worry about. Okay. Well, folks listening, that was a roundup of just three of the vendors that presented at Tech Field Day's Cloud Field Day 14 event. And if you want to dig into more of that, you can go to techfieldday.com slash event slash CFD14 and get a list of all of the vendors and the delegates that were there. And of course, go to Tech Field Day's YouTube channel and you can see presentations from the Cloud Field Day 14 playlist. If you want to hear more of the details about any of the vendors we covered today, Weka, Alkira, and Morpheus Data, all those videos were there. There's going to be an hour or two worth of presentations from each of the vendors, plus the vendors that we did not cover because uh, you guys said there were, oh, six or seven total vendors that presented at the uh, at the event, you just picked off the three that grabbed your attention the most. So, all right. Um, now, Chaos Lever, one more time. Uh, Chris, if folks want to subscribe to the Chaos Lever podcast because they think you and Ned are just awesome and they want more of you two, where do they go? Yeah, you know, as they should. Um, the website is chaoslever.com and the Twitter link is, is it chaos underscore lever or is it chaos lever all one? Uh, chaos lever was taken by some some other person so chaos underscore lever is the actual twitter handle and, or you can just follow me or you if you must uh, mine is ned 1313 yours is hainer 80 so I, I don't i wouldn't i wouldn't follow you it's you're very <laughs> okay <boring. laughs> just because we know those about- of you out there needed yet more tech podcast to listen to so uh Ned and Chris have a lot of fun on Chaos Lever covering a broad swath of technology, not just enterprise nerd stuff like we cover here on Day 2 Cloud. So thanks to you guys for making the time to record today, especially you, Ned. I mean, to oh, wait a minute. This is actually your show. You're here all the time. Anyway, so no ah, thanks to you. You, you were going to be me. here anyway. Ha! If you're still listening, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, tweet at Ned and I via at Day 2 Cloud Show. And if you don't tweet, uh, if you don't if you don't twit, if you don't, yeah, if you don't twit, if you don't tweet, fill out the form on Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Now, maybe you're a vendor and you just heard us talk about these folks that were appearing at Cloud Field Day and so on. Well, you know what? Maybe you have a way cool cloud product and you want to share that with our audience of IT professionals. You can become a Day 2 Cloud sponsor. You're going to reach several thousand listeners, all of whom have problems to solve, and maybe your product fixes their problem. We're never going to know unless you tell them about your amazing solutions. You can find out more at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. And we'll be in touch about how you can come aboard the Day 2 Cloud podcast. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.